You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. invite you to turn to Genesis 17. Genesis 17. We're going to begin reading with verse 7 and read through verse 13. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I'll give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we do praise you, Father, for your holy word. Father, we look to you now and we ask that you would be pleased to bless us and to give to us understanding of your ways, of your person, of holiness, of righteousness, of your covenant, of these sacraments that you've given us to strengthen us and our weakness and our frailty. Father, we pray that you would bless us now by being our teacher and our guide. Father, we would truly hear your voice. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. My aim this morning is really to stand on the shoulders of what we considered last week. And I use that metaphor of standing on the shoulders really to say that what we really want to try to do is take what we looked at last week and try to begin to apply it. How does this apply? How does it fan out into... Uh, our lives. Last week, we surveyed the scriptures and discovered that baptism really is a multifaceted, uh, really deep, spiritually rich uh, sign, isn't it? As we began to look through the scriptures and look through all of the things that baptism points to, it points away from itself, and we need to always remember that. We get into a lot of trouble if we forget that very fact right there, that it always points away from itself. It points away from itself to a whole host of beautiful covenant blessings. Uh, For example, it points away from itself to our union with Christ. You know, Jesus says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. And baptism points to that engrafting by the Holy Spirit uh, of uh, us into the vine. It points to Christ's work of washing us of our sins. It points to the Holy Spirit's work of regenerating us or giving us new birth. It points to our adoption into the family of God. It points to, uh, points to eternal life, uh, new life in Christ Jesus. Uh, it points to the Holy Spirit's work of engrafting us into the church. And it reminds us, lastly, of our covenant obligations 
and responsibilities to respond in faith and obedience, doesn't it? So it's all these things, uh, all of these things, and each one of these things. We, we, could, we could spend so much time on each one of these things, couldn't we? I mean, you can see how, that, how, how, how rich that sign uh, is. So what I want to do this morning is stand on the shoulders of this, if you will, and, and introduce you to a spiritual discipline that you probably, in all likelihood, have never heard of, unless you've heard me talking about it lately, and that's the discipline of improving our baptism. How many have heard of that before? The discipline of improving our baptism. That's okay. I wouldn't have expected anyone to have heard about that. I've been saying a lot about it because in my mind, all the way back in Genesis, when we first turned to Genesis 17, I've been wanting to go to this. I've been working, actually uh, working towards this whole discipline of improving our baptism. Uh, question 167 of the Westminster Larger Catechism asks, how is our baptism to be improved by us? Now, when we first hear that, uh, and perhaps someone is thinking this right now, when we first hear that, we might think, that sounds really strange. How are we going to Im improve upon a sacrament that's been ordained by Jesus? that's been designed by Almighty God, that's been instituted by Christ Himself. How are fallen sinners like us going to improve upon that? <laughs> well, uh, the answer is on God's end, we're not going to. <laughs> but that's not what this, that's not what this discipline uh, concerns. It's not on God's end. Uh, this discipline concerns improvements on our end. That's what it concerns. Uh, my guess is that very few people in our culture have ever heard of this um, improving our baptism. And even at the time of the writing of the Westminster Larger Catechism, it was little practiced. I mean, listen to the first part of the answer the catechism gives. It asks the question, how is our baptism to be improved by us? But then it answers, quote, the needful but much neglected duty of improving our baptism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Just listen to that first part. The needful but much neglected. So you see, even at the time, even in the mid-1600s, this discipline was much neglected. But they also said it was needful. It was needful, much needful. It was needed, but much neglected. Now, very soon I want to begin a similar study on the Lord's Supper while we're talking about the sacraments. I want to, uh, really, I want to go into the Lord's Supper. Perhaps next week we'll start on the Lord's Supper. Uh, but when we begin to look at the Lord's Supper and we begin to compare the two New Testament sacraments with one another, one of the first major differences that we're going to recognize is the frequency. The Lord's Supper is something we do over and over and over again, isn't it? We do it over and over and over again. The Lord institutes the Lord's Supper for us, but He doesn't give us uh, a frequency. He doesn't prescribe for us when we're to do it or how often we're to do it. He just simply says, when you do this, do this in remembrance of me. In other words, he doesn't say, I want you to do this every Sunday. Or I want you to do this once a month. I, I want you to do this on the first Sunday of the month. Or I want you to do this quarterly. Or I want you to do this twice a year. I think the arguments for doing it every Sunday are better than the arguments for not doing it every Sunday, quite frankly. But 
you're not going to hear me become dogmatic about it because we're not given, we're not given a frequency. My point for, for right now is this sacrament is something we do over and over and over again, isn't it? A baptism is only to be done once in a lifetime. It should only be done once, not over and over again. It should only be done once. And if you think about all of the things that baptism stands for and signifies, it makes sense that it should only be done once. We can only be engrafted into the vine once. It isn't like Christ engrafts us in the vine and cuts us off, and engrafts us in the vine and cuts us off. We don't have this over and over again thing going on. Of course, remember, baptism always points away from itself. Baptism doesn't engraft us into the vine. Baptism is a sign and a seal that points to the Holy Spirit's work of grafting us into the vine. Does that make sense? So baptism is something that's only done once. Now, unfortunately, we have a tendency uh, to forget all about our baptism, to be baptized, and then uh, there's initial excitement about it, initial excitement, and then afterwards we have a tendency to forget about it. I mean, this past week, how many times have you thought about your baptism? Now, maybe in lieu of last week's message, maybe you thought about it quite a bit, so I'll ask you prior to last week's message, how many times have you thought about your baptism? (laughs) Alex, your facial expression is killer. It's killer. It's gone, so don't bother turning around. But if I see it again, I'll point your attention to it. It was great, man. It was great. Uh, It was great. In our text this morning, and, and really, before we get to our text this morning, you know, the, the larger catechism is guiding us here when it says the needful but much neglected duty of improving our baptism is to be performed by us all our life long. How often do we think about baptism? We have a tendency to be baptized and forget about it. But the, the, the preachers of old, these, the, the, these soul physicians, they're calling us to, to reflect on our baptism often, to think about our baptism often. In fact, uh, all our life long. And these are men who had practiced this, and they're men who had gained much fruit from it. So it would be good for us to take a leaf out of their book. In our text this morning, in verse 7, if you'll look there with me, the Lord says to Abraham, he says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. Now, I point your attention to this verse to get started because last week, or not last week, but in an earlier message, we looked at these verses, and I pointed out to you that in these verses, especially in verse 7 and 8, we really have what I think we could call the heart of the covenant of grace. And namely, that is the promise where God is promising His people, listen, I'm going to be your God. That's something else we take for granted, actually. Uh, in, in, and I'm, I don't mean any unkindness when I say this, but in our arrogance, sometimes it's inconceivable to us that God wouldn't want to be our God. And that is arrogance, because there are a lot of reasons why God could maybe choose not to be our God. I don't mean any unkindness with that. This is amazing, actually. And our arrogance blinds us from this. But God is coming to Abraham, and he's saying, listen, Abraham, I'm, I'm going to be your God. I'm going to be your God. And why would I say that's the heart of the promise? Because what is God doing? He is giving Abraham the most precious of gifts. 
In fact, he's given Abraham the greatest thing that he could give Abraham, and that's himself. There is no greater gift than God himself. It's not, Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. Of course the land's in there. Or I'm going to give you this, or I'm going to give you that, or I'm going to give you offspring. I'm going to give all... No, Abraham, I'm going to be your God. I have a gift for you. It's me. And that necessarily implies that, Abraham, you're going to be mine. I'm going to make you my people. I'm going to make you mine. And when the Lord gives himself to us, he's at the same time taking us to be his. And furthermore, the Lord gives Abraham a sacrament. And the sacrament of circumcision is a sign and seal of this promise. As a sign, it points away from itself to the promise. As a seal, it proves or confirms the promise. And what does this do for Abraham? Well, it serves as a constant, lifelong reminder of this promise, doesn't it? That's what it's doing. Abraham would be reminded of this promise every day because the marks of circumcision on his body would be a testimony every day to this promise. He would see it multiple times a day. And it would remind him of this covenant promise. And it would seal that covenant promise for him. Namely, that God, the creator of the universe, had condescended and stepped down to make Abraham uh, his and to be Abraham's would testify to Abraham that he belonged to the Lord. And this blessing is not just for Abraham, but for all of his children. If you look at verse 9 with me. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. And the last part of verse 10, every male among you shall be circumcised. Verse 11, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. So here we see from these verses, the Lord is making this covenant with Abraham and his children. Verse 9, as for you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. Verse 10, Lord commands Abraham, every male among you shall be circumcised. And this would include foreigners who were part of Abraham's household. You look at verse 13. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. And notice how concerned God is here with Abraham's household. And if I might just, if we might just park the car for a minute, because we're coming to one of those places, you know, those places where you want to pull over. When Tammy and I were down, downstate and we're driving on the, the Blue Ridge Parkway when we were going through Virginia, lots of places where you could pull over and take, over the, take, take a look at the scenery. Here's a place where we could pull over. Notice how concerned God is for Abraham's household. I mean, it caused the entire household to undergo circumcision. This should be great comfort to those of us who routinely pray for unsaved family members. God is concerned about the household. We need to always remember that. Look how concerned he is here. Abraham is the head of the household, and the Lord has a hold of his heart. Abraham is, is, is clearly the most influential member of the house. And let's not forget that Abraham's household is quite extensive. Remember, he, he mustered up 318 men to go after Lot. Now, obviously, he didn't, leave, he didn't take all of the men out of his household because he had to leave some men behind to care for the flocks. 
Some scholars estimate that Abraham's household may have been a thousand men, a thousand men strong. That's conjecture. We don't know. We don't know how many. We know there were more than 318. I think we can, we can say that. Where all these... All, all of these men were to undergo circumcision. They were to receive the, circum- the sign, the covenant sign of circumcision. Were all these men in a state of grace? I can answer that question, no. How, do you, how can you answer the question, no? Well, because Ishmael was one of them. But they all received the sign of circumcision. And here's something, this is something for us to hold on to here because not everyone who's brought into the covenant not everyone who's brought into the covenant of grace is in a state of grace. It's important for us to remember that. Or we're going we're, we're to trip. We're going to fall down if we don't remember that. Not everyone who's brought into the covenant of grace by virtue of the sacrament of circumcision, or for that matter, by the, virtue of, uh, by the sacrament of baptism, not everyone who's brought, it, brought into the covenant of grace is in a state of grace. Okay? The church has always been a mixed community. I wish that wasn't so. As a pastor, that's one of the most painful things for me, I, um, I think, by far. Uh, as, I, as I stand here this morning and I look out, the thoughts of any one of you not being in a state of grace is not something I want to entertain very long. All these men were to undergo circumcision. Were they all in a state of grace? No. This has been true of every age. So that's a call to us, isn't it? It's a call to us to examine ourselves and repent afresh and seek the mercy of, the mercy of God. Now look, look with me to verse 12. Genesis verse 12, which the first sentence served as our Scripture memory verse this morning. It says, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Now, today in democratic America, and I, when, I, when I use the qualifier in front of America, I use the word democratic to describe America. I'm not here um, slamming democracy. I'm happy, that I'm, I'm happy to live where we live. Um, I'm not slamming democracy here. But today in democratic America, I mean, we read these verses and we're tempted to say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Eight days old? This child has no idea what's going on here. This child has no knowledge of what circumcision means. This child is an infant. This child does not know what a covenant is. He is not able to make a profession of faith. He's not able to say publicly, I want to follow the Lord all my days. How can he receive the covenant sign? And what could circumcision possibly mean to an infant? Well, on Wednesday night, I don't know how well it went over. I told Tammy before we left for Bible study, this is going to go or it's going gonna, it's gonna to bomb one or the other. I'm not sure what happened, uh, but it's behind us now. <laughs> but the point I was trying to make Wednesday night is we were looking at Acts chapter 1, and we were looking at the last question that the disciples asked the Lord. And they say to the Lord, uh, are you now at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And we were looking at how misguided that question was. And we were trying to get behind the question to see that there actually was some blindness taking place. And the blindness was the result of a presupposition that, was, that had not been examined. 
And I, I would submit to you that that's what we have going on here. If we were to ask, what could circumcision possibly mean to these children? If we're asking that question, there is a presupposition in that question that needs examining. It needs examining. And, and let's examine it. Let's think this through. How did these children come to be born in Abraham's household? In other words, how is it that these particular children were born in Abraham's household instead of Kedar Lahomer's household? How is it that these, kid, these kids were born in Abraham's household instead of down in Egypt somewhere? Does God just like send boxes that aren't opened? to parents when it's time to have children. Okay, it's time to have children. Send another box. Is that what's going on? There's no one in this room that believes that, especially those of you who are parents. When you look into the eyes of your children, do you think that the child came to you just out of random chance? That is not how you look at your children. Not a single one of you look at your children that way. No, when you look into the eyes of your children, you see how much they resemble you. Maybe they even have your exact eyes. They're gifts from God's hand. Those particular children are gifts from His hand. The children you have are the children God has given to you, just as we were given to our parents. Paul tells us this in Acts chapter 17, verse 26. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all of the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundary of their dwelling place, much in the same way that the Lord chose Abram. He's also chosen the children that would be born into Abraham's house. And he has commanded Abraham to circumcise them. We place such an emphasis on ourselves, on our actions, on our decisions that we become blind to what God is doing. He's, <laughs> we entertain these grand thoughts that we're somehow in control of all of this, you know. God's the one that's in control. The Lord put these children in Abraham's house and he's commanded Abraham to circumcise them. Were all these infants saved the day they were circumcised? No, circumcision doesn't save them. Circumcision points away from itself to what? All of those covenant promises. Remember, circumcision doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. Jesus is the Savior, not the sacrament. Sacrament points to Jesus. Circumcision points to the Messiah who was to come. That's one of the promises, the great promises of the covenant. If you believe and trust in the Lord, you'll be saved. Abraham believed the Lord. He counted it to him as righteousness. That's the same covenant promises that's being held before us today, isn't it? If you believe and trust in the Lord, you'll be made righteous. Why? For the righteousness of Christ credited to you. It's the same covenant promise that's held before us. And if you believe and trust in Christ, as He has offered to you in the gospel, you'll also be saved. And these children received the covenant sign that pointed to the promise and confirmed the promise, and they bore the marks of circumcision every day of their lives except for eight days. Now, I'll conjecture on this part. I don't think that it would have been physically safe for these children to, go, to be born into this world and immediately circumcised. I'm not a physician, but to me, that doesn't sound safe. 
And my guess is the eighth day is really about the earliest that this can safely be done. This is conjecture on my part. So what is the Lord doing? He's marking them children as His because they're His. He put them there. They're His. And He's marking them as His. And there's never really, in, in all arguments sake, there's never really a day where those children are not marked off as the Lord's. They bear the covenant marks. They bear the covenant marks. And every day they saw the marks of circumcision on their bodies. And what did these marks point to? They pointed to the promises. What promises? The promise that God had made, that he had, the promises that God he made to be, to be their God. That they're set apart. That they're His. What else? The promise of the removal of sin. That's what the removal of fresh flesh is emblematic of. It's an emblem of the removal of sin, the washing of sin. In other words, it points to that washing that we have in Christ Jesus. Now here, whether we realize it or not, we're getting a profound lesson in parenting here. A profound lesson in parenting. We, when we ask the question, what could circumcision possibly mean to these children? I mean, as soon as, as soon as, as soon as they're able to begin to comprehend what those marks mean, then the parents were able to start telling them, listen, I want to show you. See these marks? You know what these marks mean? These marks point to the covenant of grace. You were born in a believing household. God puts you in a household where you would hear these promises, where you'd hear these great promises that there's a Messiah who's coming. And these promises point to a Messiah who is coming. And if you put your trust and your faith in the Messiah who is coming, then you're going to be washed of your sins, just like the removal of the flesh is emblematic of the washing of your sins. So in other words, every day those surgical marks preach the gospel to these children every time they saw them. Baptism, which replaces circumcision, does not leave surgical marks behind. As I've said, a bloody sacrament is inappropriate. After the shedding of the blood of Christ Jesus, it's inappropriate. But circumcision replaces baptism. Baptism doesn't leave surgical marks behind, but baptism nevertheless marks you. You're marked by baptism. You're marked. doesn't leave surgical marks behind, but it, it marks you. It leaves marks on you. If you've been baptized, you're marked. You've been set apart from this world. What does this mean? Well, let me share with you what it means to me. I was baptized as an infant. What does this mean to me? Well, I don't remember the event. It was a long time ago, probably 51 years ago. I don't remember it, but... This is what it means to me. I was set apart. I was born in a believing household that would take me and present me to be baptized. And I received the privilege of having the sign of the covenant of grace given to me, a sign that pointed to Jesus, a sign that pointed to all the covenant promises, a sign that pointed to the promise that if I would embrace Christ, then I would enjoy salvation. If I would embrace Christ, my sins would be washed away. If, I'd be, if I would embrace Christ, I would be engrafted into Christ. If I would embrace Christ, I would be His. God would be my God. I would be His people. I did not come to faith until I was an adult, but I have to tell you as a child, I love the church. I have great memories of the church. 
precious memories of the church. I liked, I, 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 I have, I always, one thing I always felt, I always felt like I belonged to the church. This is important. I had good reason for feeling like I belonged to the church. Because I did. I did. These children that are running around in here, what do we say to them? They're not part of the church? Children who are born to believing parents who present their children for baptism and are baptized, what do we say to them? What do we say to Isaac? You're not part of the church? Perish that thought. My prayer is he runs around in here and he's collecting and gathering memories that are just like mine. Does he belong here? Absolutely he belongs here. Does, does Evie belong here? Does Aiden belong here? Oh, absolutely they belong here. Perish any thought that they're not part of the church. We tell them what God has done for them. We tell them all of us collectively. So this is why we don't go baptizing out in the woods somewhere apart from the covenant community of the people of God. Because this isn't a job just for parents. This is a job of a local church to remind these kids, you're part of the church. Isaac, you're part of the church. You belong here. If you can get that out without your eyes tearing up, you don't get what's going on. He could have been born to anybody. He wasn't. He wasn't. Part of the church. You're marked. You have the marks of baptism. And those marks are pointing to Jesus. And if you embrace Jesus, he will be all yours. God will be all yours. This is what we tell our kids. You're marked. You're marked. Now, how do we improve on this? Well, we improve on this by our response. What should our response be to this? How should I respond to such an enormous blessing to be born in a believing household? Well, try this one out. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's what we're to do. That's what we're to do. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Follow the Lord with all of your heart. Proper response is to trust and cherish every single one of those promises. Improving our baptism doesn't just, it doesn't just, it isn't just for children who have been born into believing households and who were baptized in infancy. It doesn't make any difference if you were baptized yesterday or 51 years ago. Improving our baptism is recalling the event. Whether we can remember it or not doesn't really matter. You were marked. These kids that were eight days old, I think it's a blessing that they didn't remember that surgical procedure that was done in antiquity 4,000 years ago. Surgery 4,000 years ago wouldn't have been the picnic. Uh, not that it's a picnic today, but you get what I'm talking about. But just because you can't remember the event doesn't mean it's not meaningful. You see how that whole idea needs to be re-examined. It needs to be re-examined. What does it remind us of? Well, as we begin to think about our baptism, we begin to recall it, we begin to look at it, we, 
we discover that actually it's a powerful means for resisting temptation. I mean, when we're tempted to sin, what does our baptism preach to us? What well, reminds us of our union with Christ? It reminds us that we have, we've been taken out of the world. Our, our union with the world has been severed, and our union with Christ, we've been grafted into our union with Christ. It reminds us of our washing of sin. It reminds us of new life, eternal life, what God has given us. I mean, we can reason with ourselves, listen, with what all God has given us, how can we continue to sin against Him? That works, actually. Our baptism reminds us that we're marked, that we've been taken out of the world and marked as property of Almighty God. Our baptism reminds us of our adoption. The Lord was not, He could have saved us and put us in a room somewhere and said, there, you enjoy salvation, but that's not what He did. It's not what He did. He went further than that. He says, no, I'm going to save you, I'm going to make you mine. And you're going to be so mine. You're going to be so mine that you're, uh, you're going to be my son or you're going to be my daughter. Doesn't that warm your soul? Warms mine. It's fun preaching these kinds of sermons, you know. They warm us, don't they? Improving our baptism can help us face difficult situations. Some of our situations sometimes can become so difficult that we might even be tempted to say that God has abandoned us. Where's God? How can He let this happen? Baptism can really help you with that. Because when we think God has abandoned us, we can look at the marks. You've been set apart. You're marked. God hasn't abandoned you. There's the sign that he hasn't abandoned. You've been baptized. Put your trust and faith in Christ. This is a sign and seal. I'll leave you with one last thing. Your baptism always points you to Christ because it's only in him where you'll find strength for your soul. Our baptism, if we can only remember one thing, youngsters, if you leave here this morning, you can only remember one thing. Baptism points us to Jesus. Baptism points us to Jesus. If you can remember that, that'd be great. Baptism points us to Jesus. Why is that so important? Because it's only in Jesus that we can be saved. He's our Savior. When everything's falling apart and everything's just coming off at the wheels, Jesus is our Savior. Meditating on this, cherishing in this, trusting in this, that involves improving our baptism. Amen? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these wonderful truths, Father, that, Father, they're sometimes difficult to get out. I thank you that it's that way, Lord. If we can speak about these things in a, really in a monotone way, it's hard to imagine that we even understand them. Father, what you've given to us is so great. These are the, the greatest blessings that that we experience in this lifetime, Father. We thank you, O Lord, for the sign and seal of baptism that you've given us, Father. Upon hearing this, Lord, if um, whether anyone would, who's never been baptized would want to be baptized, Father, I pray that you would work in their hearts. You say, you know, I think I would. O Father, upon hearing this, if anyone would, Say, you know, I don't know that I've ever really placed my trust in Christ. 
the way that I'm hearing it this morning. Someone's thinking that right now. Father, I pray, Lord, that they would. That they would want you to be their God. That they would want to be your child. Father, thank you for this offer. In Jesus' name, amen.